how do you close the book of Romans? How do you wrap up a study like this? It's pretty impossible to say something profound that hasn't been said. If it's not impossible, it is for me. I'm just not up to that task. You have, <laughs> you have no idea how inadequate I feel right now to sum up this book. Uh, here's the way that Paul wraps it up, and that is with the doxology. We have looked already at chapter 16. To him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. Then he continues down to verse 27 to the only wise God. Here's, here's really the doxology. Now to him, and then he is described. And he returns in verse 27 to him, to the only wise God. Through Jesus Christ, be the glory forevermore. So he beckons us to worship the only wise God. Now, <laughs> that doesn't mean that there are a lot of really dumb gods out there, but we worship the only one who's wise. It means that we worship the only God. In contrast to chapter 1, where people were creating their own gods and worshiping those and worshiping the creature rather than the creator, in contrast to that, he's the only God. And we have seen his plan unfold in Romans 1 through 16 and understand at least a bit more that he is the only wise God, the infinitely wise God, the only being in the cosmos who knows how everything works. He's the creator, he knows who we are how we think, what makes us tick, what our natures are, how things went so wrong, and how he and only he, he alone, the only wise God, can put things right. In my office, I have a file sitting on my desk right now. It's got a bunch of paper stuffed in it. Mostly it's my preaching notes, and the top of it is labeled Romans 2016. That's when we started. It was actually the last week in April 2016. And when we began, I gave you a grid that shows schematically the big picture of this book. I reproduced it in the sermon notes that are in your bulletin today. If you want to look at it, in chapters 1 through 5, we studied the great theme of being justified by faith, by God's grace activated by faith in Jesus Christ. And then that section concludes with a near doxology. In chapters 6 through 8, sanctification, how should we live in light of being justified by God's grace through faith? And that ends in the great doxology that's already been read this morning in chapter 8. Chapters 9 through 11 have their own theme, which we'll look at later, where God's plan is vindicated and we understand, okay, so this is how it fits together. And that concludes with the majestic doxology in chapter 11. And then chapters 12 through 16 ask the question, okay, so what? How should we live? 
begins by having transformed and renewed minds to think about all these different categories of application. And that concludes with the doxology in chapter 16, to the only wise God. By the way, good doctrine results in doxology. Where we praise God, we reflect on who He is, we glorify Him. And and, in a while, when this sermon is done, we're going to close by singing a song of exuberant praise. And can it be? It's a song that glorifies God. We're going to... we're not going to stand right. <laughs> but think of it. And can it be that I should gain an, entrance, an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I want you to think about those words when we sing them. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. That's chapter 5. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's light. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and found out the end. That's chapter 6. No condemnation now I dread. I wonder if there's anything that corresponds to that in Romans. That's chapter 8. When we sing that, I hope you sing it as doxology, with exuberance, with joy. We glorify him because, yes, it's true we have sinned and fallen short of what the glory of God. How do we reconnect with God's glory? We don't. He does. He takes the initiative. That's what this whole book is about, reconnecting with God's glory. We're going to be taking a walk through Romans back through some of the points and look at where we've been and what we need to continue to meditate on. So our fingers are going to do the walking a bit this morning. Open your Bibles to chapter 1 or your device. Because he begins in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, and down to verse 7, to all. To all where? To all the beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. And then he gives his standard greeting, which was found nowhere else in the New Testament world. Grace and peace. Putting together the standard Greek greeting and and the standard Hebrew greeting. And always in that order. It's always grace before we have peace. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes down to verse 15 and says, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And why is he eager to preach the gospel? Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. God is its origin. For salvation, that's its effect, to everyone, that's the scope of it, to whom it applies, who believes, that's the condition To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's the priority of it. For in it, that is in the gospel, here's the essence of it. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it stands written, here's its unity. It's 
coheres with everything in the Old Testament, but the righteous man shall live by faith. It's always been by the faith principle that we receive the righteousness of God. The problem is we want our own righteousness. We want to do it ourselves. But verse 18 tells us, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice the contrast in verse 17. The gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. But here, the wrath of God is revealed against the unrighteousness of men. And that is the contrast. Where is the righteousness of God? What is it? It's the requirement for salvation. And what Paul does as God's prosecuting attorney is he brings three defendants before the bar of justice. Now, this is review for it. Well, everything we're going to say today is, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's review. But he, first of all, he brings the, he, the hedonist who lives for pleasure. Then he brings the hypocrite. And then he brings the Hebrew. The first de defendant is the hedonist. Why are pagans judged as unrighteous by God? Because after all, they don't even have God's word. But God has shown himself to all people, both in nature and in conscience. Manuel Kant used to say two things startle the soul. The starry heavens above and the moral law within. Interesting that this unbeliever should peg the two things that Paul has talked about here. The glory of creation and the glory of the moral law, the conscience that God has implanted in our hearts. So when it comes to the hedonist, we read in verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And later on he'll talk about conscience and how that's a part also of our makeup. Then he continues to say three times that God gave them over. What did he give them over to? To their own desires, to their own uh, passions. They shook their face in the hand of God and said, I want to do it my way. I prefer what I want over God, over his glory. I don't want God. I don't want his glory. Thank you very much. I don't care about who he is. So three times we're told God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Why? Because they exchanged, in verse 23, the glory of the incorruptible God for images. And we read in verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And we read in verse 26, they exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. So they, ex they exchanged God's glory for something that was created. They exchanged God's truth for something that was untrue. And they exchanged God's will, which is fill the earth and multiply, for that which is unnatural, men with men, women with women, is an illustration of a culture gone awry, having turned its back on God. The verdict is, in verse 20, they are without excuse. So Paul then brings the second defendant before God's bar of justice, the hypocrite. And the people that he's about to talk about in chapter 2 would have looked at those in chapter 1 and said, Oh, Paul, you are so right. 
They are hedonists. They do deserve the judgment of God. They are without excuse. Whereas I, I'm a religious person. I'm a spiritual person. And I think I can probably earn my way into heaven by my own good works. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are without excuse. Same judgment, same verdict. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. They don't do exactly that. For example, you remember what Jesus said. It's not just that you murder, it's that you have hate inside you. It's not just that you commit adultery, it's that you have lust within you. Sin is a matter of externals, but it's also a matter of internals, and people don't understand that. The point is, all you have to do to be saved before God is live a sinless life. That's how you can do it without Christ, but that's not going to happen. So, you too have the same verdict, are without excuse. So the hedonist is without excuse. The hypocrite is without excuse. They do the same things. Mm, one more person, the Hebrew. We read in chapter 2, verse 17. I mean, what about the Jews? Aren't they righteous before God? Look at verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew, rely upon the law, boast in God, know his will, approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? And he brings them up to the mirror of God's word and says, you do not understand. You have the repository of the oracles of God. You should have known better, and you too are accountable before God. Ultimately, Paul is not shifting to three separate sets of charges. What he's doing with these three defendants is he's incorporating all the charges of the first defendant with, with the second. And of the first and second with the third. You are all, to your core, co-conspirators. You are all guilty before God. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. The, the, the charges are clear. Look at verse 9, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse uh, 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. So that depravity puts together this cluster of Old Testament verses showing that dep our depravity is universal. Nobody escapes this charge. And it's true in word as well as in deed. Look at verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And also in the things that we do in deed. Verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. And here's what it comes down to. Ready for the cause? There is no fear of God before their eyes. They suppress that truth and unrighteousness because they don't want to think about who God is if he is real. So, 
Friends, that's the verdict. Are we all doomed? (laughs) Is there no hope? Look at chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God. Now, remember back in chapter 1, verse 17? For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. All right, here here it comes back to that point. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And the, the perfect tense here indicates that it's something that was completed in the past and has ongoing results. It, has been, it was and continues to be manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God. How was it attained? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. So you've got the noun faith, you've got the verb believe. Same word in noun and verb forms for those who faith it. There is no distinction for all have sinned. Past tense, that's referring to our sin in Adam. We are sinners by nature. And are falling short, present tense, we are sinners by choice. Are falling short of the glory of God. So we are all sinners, but we may have the righteousness of God imputed to us through faith in Jesus Christ, verse 24, being declared righteous or justified as a gift. This is another important Greek word. It's it's translated in John 15, without a cause. Jesus says, they hated me without a cause. In other words, there is no cause in Jesus that brought about their hatred of him. Now, if you apply, you understand that, apply that same understanding over here, being justified without a cause. There is no cause in us that brought about being declared righteous by God. The cause is all in him. It's all in him being justified as a gift freely by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly. The sacrifices in the Holy of Holies were private. Jesus' sacrifice was out in public for all to see outside the city. As a propitiation in His blood through faith. Now, why did God do it this way? Verse 26, For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's how God's attributes fit together. He is just. That is, His holiness is satisfied. His justice is satisfied. Those attributes of God that demand satisfaction are fulfilled. And... His attribute of love is fulfilled. He is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God has reversed our dilemma so that we may share in the hope of His glory. This is, in in a sense, the whole book of Romans is about glory lost. We fall short of His glory and glory regained because we participate with Him in His glory. 
and, and the aim of these first three chapters is to show that every human being, if judged by our good works, falls short of the glory of God. Our only hope is to be justified by grace through faith. Question, isn't being saved by grace through faith a new thing? I mean, why, why don't you find it anywhere in the Old Testament? The answer to that question is, question is you haven't read your Old Testament. Look at chapter 4. We read, for example, just two key examples, two key people in the Old Testament, Abraham and David. Verse 1 of chapter 4, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Now, in verse 27 of chapter 3, he said, Where is boasting? It is excluded. So here he says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He's not rejoicing in what God has done. He's rejoicing in what he has done. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. The faith principle in the Old Testament. In the what book of the Old Testament? That's uh, Genesis. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So, verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, which all of us are. Even Abraham is called ungodly here. His faith is credited as righteousness. So, Abraham was operating by the faith principle. Now, listen, that's before the law was, was, was ever given. David was saved by grace through faith after the law was given, but not by keeping the law. Verse 6, as David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Both passive tense, those things, he didn't do them, they happened to him. Why? Because, as he's about to continue to say, of the faith principle. The faith principle excludes any possibility of good works being attached to it. Look down in verse 19. Speaking of Abraham again, he shows the illustration of the birth of Isaac. And in that illustration, you remember God promised him, and Isaac, your seed will be called. So God had promised Abraham that he was going to have this child. And he didn't. And he didn't. And he didn't. And then Sarah became barren, and he couldn't. And then after another dozen or so years, Abraham himself became unable. Look at verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated, number one, his own body. Now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and, number two, the deadness of Sarah's womb. And he's saying, okay, neither parent is viable. It's now going to have to be a miracle. And it was. That's why God waited so long. Now, it's very clear this child is God's gift. Abraham's ability was dead. Her womb was dead. God brought those things to life. And verse 20 tells us, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. Look, giving what to God? Giving what? I can wait. Giving what? Glory. Glory to God. So, 
in verses 24 and 25, the one who restored Abraham's and Sarah's reproductive abilities from the dead to life is also the one who raised Jesus from the dead. He's the God who does the impossible. So, what's the outcome of all of this? Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, the faith principle, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we all, also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the what? Glory of God. Jesus, and he, God, this is glory regained. We are radiated in his glory. Jesus reversed Adam's curse. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned, that is, in Adam. Look down in verse uh, 18 now. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. All men defined in verse 17 as those who receive his grace. Verse 19, as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness, to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is the end of the book of Romans. Oh, no, wait a minute. It doesn't end there, does it? It could. It could, couldn't it? But there's more. If salvation is not by works, but by grace through faith, doesn't this mean that I could live however I want to live? Well, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. What a ghastly thought. No, 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 no. Look at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. What a ghastly thought. No, 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 no. So here Paul moves from justification to sanctification. The old man that we still inhabit is now put to death in a significant way so that the new man is to be fed, nurtured, and brought into conformity to Jesus Christ. This is a process. It's not instantaneous. It is in God's sight. It's a, it's a done deal. We are his. But we are to become more and more his in the experience of our walking with him by the Spirit. We were enslaved to sin, but sin's penalty has been paid. The wages of sin is what? Death. That has been paid, and sin therefore no longer has authority over us. Look at chapter 6, verse 20. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? I mean, your taste buds have changed. You are, you are different. You now no longer run to sin. You run from sin. You, 
and you know what? If the things that are in here and in chapter 7 bother, if, if your sin problems bother you, then good. <laughs> You're spiritually alive. So he continues in verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin, what's earned, is death. But the free gift of God, not, what, not what's earned, but what is given freely, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Question, if all this is true, then why do I still struggle with sin? Why am I the way that I am? I mean, well, but the answer to that is in chapter 7, verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh. I've still got the sin nature in me. God has already sanctified me in Him, but there is a process of sanctification that is ongoing. I am becoming who God has called me to be, but that is a slow work. So I have a sin nature, and then, okay, the rest of chapter 7, excuse me, he writes a spiritual biography of Gary. It's shameful, but I'll read you my diary. Verse 17, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 15, for what I'm doing, I do not understand. I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. I mean, there's a standard by which I measure it, and I realize, oh, ah, fall short. So now, no longer am I the one doing, but sin which dwells in me. I don't want to do it, but I'm doing it. I've got this internal conflict. In verse 18, I know there are three cycles here, three of them. And each one ends with the statement, verse 17, sin which dwells in me. Verse 20, but sin which dwells in me. Verse 23, I'm a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. So there are these three cycles, and if you feel this struggle, you're spiritually alive. And then in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 7, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say what will set me free. Personal pronoun. Who? Ah, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but the other with my flesh, the law of sin. I've got this knowledge of what I need to do. I've got the experience and in, 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 in things that tug, in, in, tug at me, that pull me in a very different direction. So um, here's, here's the question. You, you think about this. He lays out the struggle between what he knows with the law of God and in contrast with the sinful desires, which he calls the law of sin. So law of God, law of sin, the defeats that are part of my daily life. And by the way, later, well, here's the question. If I still struggle like this, how can I not be condemned? Well, next verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he continues here to talk about what it means to be in Christ Jesus positionally. There is no condemnation for you as a believer. And in fact, 
God tells me he's got plans for me because verse 29, I'm sorry, verse, uh, tw- verse 30 says, these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he justified. These, he, these whom he justified, he glorified. So he's got plans for me that includes glory. So no condemnation and I end up somehow with glory. How do I get from here with this struggle I have to there in the glory part? Well, the difference between spiritual defeat and spiritual victory is the word spirit. The word spirit occurs in both chapters 7 and 8, but the references to the Holy Spirit in chapter 7, you know how many times? Zero. In chapter 8, the Holy Spirit? 16. That's the difference between spirit of uh, between a victory and defeat and in fact look at verse verse 2 for the uh, Romans 8 2 for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death so you've got the law of God you've got the law of sin and now you've got this third operating principle of the universe the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus what makes the difference between spiritual defeat and spiritual victory spirit Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Look at verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption. As sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be, what's the word? Glorified with him. Verse 18, glory. Verse 21, glory. Verse 26, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. We don't even know how to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us for groanings too deep for words. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. These whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who's against us? If God the Father ordained this plan, who's going to cancel out his will? In verse 34, who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus died for you. The Holy Spirit is interceding for you. Jesus is interceding for you. There is nothing, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, the physical sphere, the spiritual sphere, 
the temporal sphere, the spatial sphere, nor any other created thing, which that means any other mode of existence or being, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No condemnation. No separation. And ultimately, no defeat. So, Romans, at this point, the book of Romans ends. No, wait a minute. There's more. There's more. I'm going to just say a few more things a a bit more briefly. Uh, In Romans 9 through 11, we have yet another segment of the book that makes these points. And I'll just, big picture here. First, God saves those whom he chooses. Second, God's plan for the Jews is still in effect. For the Jews, there's more in store. And third, God is still God. If you read Romans 9 through 11, those truths are, contain strong statements about the sovereignty of God. And sometimes I think believers often struggle with how God's sovereignty fits with man's free will. Uh, and, and the way that we blend those two together, sometimes people, uh, well, people just squirm. Believers squirm over, oh, how, do we, how do we fit that together? But just to be clear, uh, we studied this about a year ago, and we answered all questions then. <laughs> but for those who do struggle with the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of salvation, I have a question for you. If you were to jettison that, what would the rest of your theology look like if God were not sovereign in all other areas? I mean, just take a couple of categories. What about demonology or Satanology? Do you, do you want God to be sovereign over the doctrine of demonology, over demons, over Satan? And would it, would the, what would be the cost in, in your internal thinking regardless of how unbiblical it would be, to relieve yourself of a problem of God's sovereignty over salvation, would you want God not to be sovereign over the doctrine of end times called eschatology? So that maybe the book of Revelation works out that way, but hey, maybe not. God's not sovereign over that. Look, God is loving, good and sovereign, and we can trust him. And here's how you respond to it. You respond to it with doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That's in chapter 11, verse 33. How unsearchable are his judgments, and unfathomable his ways. We've already read this before, but I'll conclude with, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not concluding. I'll finish the chapter. For from him, and through him, and to him are all things, now listen, to him be the glory forever. How do you respond to this? With doxology. You respond, how do you respond to this? Evangelism, transformed living, and doxology. So, in chapter 10, we are to respond. So turn with me to chapter 10, verse 8. There are three responses to all of this. First of all, evangelism. In the midst of chapters 9 through 11, 
Anyone who believes in Jesus as their Savior is saved. But that places a responsibility on all of us for evangelism and also for sending evangelists. Look at chapter 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart a man, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, that is imputed righteousness of Christ given to him. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Why? Because what the heart believes, the mouth confesses. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But... Verse 14, how will they call upon him and who they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And that means proclaimer, somebody to share the good news. Uh, how will they preach unless they are sent? So God calls on us to share the gospel and to share sharers of the gospel with the world. So that's the first response, evangelism. The second response to all these things, after the 11 chapters of the exposition of the mercies of God, the only appropriate response is for believers to present ourselves as living sacrifices to the sovereign Lord with renewed minds. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, the mercies that he's been studying, teaching us about, Present yourselves, present your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice. The sacrifices in the Old Testament were dead sacrifices. You are to be a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The idea of being transformed is the same Greek word for being transfigured. When Jesus was transfigured, what he was on the inside became apparent on the outside. And what he's saying is, you have a new nature inside. Make that apparent on the outside. Be transformed. Now, what he does over the next chapters is he gives different areas in which we can demonstrate godly, transformed living what that looks like in terms of government, civil magistrates, persecution was a big problem. So how do you navigate those things uh, with the government? How do you, when, because we're free in Christ, how do we navigate weaker brother issues? Because a lot of people came to Christ, a lot of Christians had a lot of baggage. So how do you navigate wisdom and show love with those things? And those are in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15. And look with me in chapter 15, verse 7. Look at how he concludes this section. Chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also has accepted us to the glory of God. So, evangelism, transformed living. And then in chapter 16, there's a long list of greetings to men and women who served with Paul. Here you, we, we've, we've already seen insight 
into Paul as a, as a pastor, as a friend, as a, as a person. So evangelism, transformed living, and doxology. Romans 9 through 11 ends with an amazing doxology that we've looked at. Romans 16 ends with this doxology. Look at verse 25. Now to him, and then verse 27, to the only wise God. So verse 25 of chapter 16. Now to him who is able to establish you. And there are three accordings here. (laughs) According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. According to the gospel. Number two, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets. So according to, really, God's eternal plan all along. So according to the gospel, the eternality of God's plan, and according to, verse 26 continues, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. That is, sharing the gospel, salvation by the faith principle to be proclaimed among all the nations. Going back to Genesis 3, the promise of the seed of the woman. Genesis 12, the promise to Abraham, in you, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now this is becoming... This is coming to pass. This is a part. This is the gospel, God's eternal plan all along. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the what? Glory forever. Amen. And amen, the last word, means this is true. It's the same Greek word that's used in John where Jesus would say, verily, verily, truly, truly. And what he's saying is true. This is true. This is true. Romans 1. In our sin, we exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for something less. Romans 3. We've sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5. We were, after we're saved, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Romans 8. If we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. Our sufferings are not to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. Romans 8, also, we look forward to the day when we are set free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then after a heavy doctrinal discussion, he says that we will be also glorified in Romans 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory of God forever. Romans 15, therefore accept one another just as God has accepted us to the glory of God. And Romans 16, 27, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. So my file in Romans, my office on my desk says Romans 2016. I began by telling you that. Now I'm ending by telling you that, and I'm looking in a mirror here, We're accountable for what we've heard, for transformed lives, for sharing the gospel, for putting it into practice in our lives around us. And I I, I hope and pray that there's no one here that has not yet embraced this truth, but if you have not yet been saved, if you have not received the good news, if you have not received Jesus Christ by grace through faith, 
embraced this truth. I would love to talk to you because I, this is the most glorious truth in all of the universe. This is what transformed living is all about. It's gospel proclamation that God has made rescue possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus so that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This past Thursday was uh, the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the landing of the Allied forces on the beaches of Normandy. Over 9,000 men were killed or wounded on that day. Um, and I read an article just this past week, this week, uh, that described the movie Saving Private Ryan, which pictures the Normandy landing. It begins with the Normandy landing, and it pictures that with astonishing realism so that veterans groups have said, yes, that's exactly what it was like. The backstory of that film is that Private Ryan's three brothers have been killed in other battles so that the War Department, per War Department policy, that a, that a family not die out, Captain Miller, who is Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller is assigned to take a detail of men after the Normandy invasion to go deeper into France and find Private Ryan and bring him back safely to his family. And as they search for Private Ryan, good men from this detail are killed. Captain Miller himself doubts the cost-benefit logic of this, and he says, quote, this Ryan better be worth it. He'd better go home and cure some disease or invent the longer-lasting light bulb or something. And throughout the movie, the question of being worth the sacrifice is central. Is it worth it? The article read, Miller and others ponder whether Ryan's life will be as precious and valuable as the lives spent to purchase his freedom. But of course, it won't be. That's how grace works. It's offensively asymmetrical. Unquote. Captain Miller's last words to Ryan before he himself dies is, earn this, earn it. Earn this, earn it. What if Jesus' last words on the cross had been, earn this? But of course, we could never earn it. That's what grace is. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am so thankful, so thankful that instead of saying earn this, he said it is finished. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word, for this book as a beginning meditation that would transform our lives. But Father, we ask that we would be faithful in hearing your word and applying its truth and sharing the gospel with those around us. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. As Gary said,